Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. I'm John Edwards, and I'm a lute player and the artistic director of the Musicians in Ordinary. And in these offices, I've had the good fortune to work for a number of years with Deanne Williams, professor in English at York University and Killam Research Fellow on girls and their books and girls as performers and uh, theatre music more generally uh, in the uh, early modern period. So when she asked me to talk with her about her book, Childhood Education and the Stage in Early Modern English, which she edited with uh, Richard Price of the University of Utah, I thought there's another piece of good fortune. And I'm here in Toronto in Deanne's office now talking about that. So Deanne, why don't you tell the listeners how you got interested in girlhood and girls of performers and their books and so thus education uh, how did you first get interested in that well I got interested in um, the topic of girlhood when my daughter Matilda was born and I started thinking about where she as a little girl fit into the um, historical period that I was interested in in the Middle Ages um, and in the Renaissance. Um, What were the studies of little girls? Um, What were the historical studies? What were the cultural contributions of little girls? I found there was actually very little discussion of that. And so thus began um, what has kind of become my life's work, um, (laughs) looking at girls um, uh, from various different angles. And so I wrote a book called Shakespeare and the Performance of Girlhood, which was published in 2014. And in that book, I talked about Shakespeare's girl characters. So um, as that subject had never really been addressed. And I found that um, it was in fact a very, a very rich topic in Shakespeare. Um, Shakespeare uses the word girl about 68 times um, throughout uh, his work. And so I just kind of went through the plays and looked at the places where the word girl is used and where girlhood comes up. And I sort of generated a notion about what uh, girlhood meant to Shakespeare. And that was the, really the answer to the first question that I had. What does, Mm -hmm. what does. And so that, so here's a a man imagining girls for boys to play. Exactly right. So Shakespeare's stage is a transvestite stage, so young boys played those female parts. And so it was interesting to me to think about the way in which uh, a male author and boy actors could, between them, come up with a uh, an idea of girlhood that, in fact, proved to be quite 
uh, generative. Um, the second half of my book looks at the kind of the afterlife of those girl heroines um, in uh, responses to them by Milton, uh, for example, and in responses to Shakespeare by girl authors as well. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll come back to Milton uh, mm-hmm. for sure. And and what was the sort of uh, genesis of this uh, childhood education and the stage book? What was the generation of this book in particular? How did that um, come to be? Right. Well, I think it was around the time that I was finishing up my girl, uh, my Shakespeare and the performance of girlhood book that I was um, chatting with my colleague and friend Richard Price about um, there there being a kind of a, a, a new interest, perhaps a renewed interest uh, in child studies. We knew a number of, of scholars whose work we uh, really admired and respected who were working on childhood and we thought um, it would be interesting to get colleagues together to sort of talk about uh, about childhood. So we um, were invited to the European Shakespeare Research Association meeting, ESRA, as it is known, which happened to be in Montpellier in the south of France. So we were delighted to have the opportunity to go there. (laughs) Um, And so that was our sort of pretext for bringing our friends and scholars, uh, friends and colleagues together to, to talk about that topic. And so we met at, at that, at that conference in Montpellier and you know, we had, we had, I think all of us, you know, kind of worked hard um, on our papers and on, on, on generating a discussion and we were sort of primed for it. But as I recall, maybe people who were in the room remember differently. I recall it was not a terribly successful seminar. <laughs> it was, I felt it was kind of a clunker. Um, there was a, there was a, a difficulty keeping to time uh, and so many different ideas and so many different angles mm-hmm. and perspectives that I don't feel it was one of my more successful, uh, you know, p- professional performances. I, I think. Uh, do you think there was just too much? And as you say, it's kind of a new thing. Is ever just everybody tried to say get out everything they knew too quickly? Do you think it's that? I think so, and such a variety of different of, of different perspectives mm-hmm. as well. Our topic was um, mythologies of childhood, and so some people were coming at it from the perspective of uh, a classical humanism and mythographies, and some people were talking about about the, the myth of childhood in Shakespeare, and there were all kinds of different uh, different angles, um, but. You know, we consoled ourselves after because it turned out that there were there was a lot of conversation after the seminar mm-hmm. that was happening in bars and restaurants as as people were saying, well, you know, they went to this this the seminar maybe because it wasn't terribly successful, but they they generated certain ideas, and so we noticed people were talking about it, and it became a kind of a, t- a, t- a talking point for the rest of the conference. Um, and um, the, a, a group of us who had been in the seminar. Uh, then went on a little day trip to Kakasan. Um, and we spent most of our journey on the train to Kakasan talking about the seminar and talking about childhood and sort of hammering out some of the major ideas that became um, this book. So it was a co-edited volume, but it was really also very much generated out of a series of discussions with the contributors as well. I can re- Yeah, I can remember being at a concert once and it was uh, just a weird concert. And we were sitting there for hours after the concert and you know, having a refreshing beverage and talking about it. And, and I can remember saying, 
well, there's a lot of concerts that we go to that we wouldn't be talking about it two hours. There's a lot happened there. Yes. So there was a lot to talk about from it. So I think it was a good concert because it was provocative in that yep. way. And you might, uh, you, that sounds like the same sort of thing for that. Uh, well, that's an seminar. interesting word because we actually use that word um, provocation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the, that's the word in the introduction um, as well. We hope that this will not be a final statement, but a provocation to that's, future, yeah. to future mm-hmm. work. And I think that's true. And I think that um, that what we were able to bring together um, for the first time in in Montpellier was a notion of how these two major institutions uh, had their own childhoods in the Renaissance. So Mm -hmm. uh, the grammar school, that culture of education um, and the the public public stage um, uh, obviously had, had many historical precedents, but what we recognize now as those two institutions really had their beginnings in uh, in the Renaissance and grew up together, and that childhood was a key uh, key factor in in both of them. I mean, I think that it's sort of obvious that childhood would be at stake in in educational institutions, and I think that what we came to learn was that the children in Shakespeare that may be disregarded or marginalized, um, in fact, are quite central to Shakespeare's imagination um, and are picked up uh, in, for, by Shakespeare's readers later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the books in, well, you write the introduction and then there are four sections by, uh, as I say, you edit the book, but with uh, lots of different uh, uh, scholars. So let's go through the um, these different sections. Uh, the first one's uh, Shakespearean Childhoods. Uh, when Ham- the essays are Hamlet's Boyhood by Seth Lehrer at uh, UC San Diego. The Traffic in Children, Joseph Campana, Rice University. Uh, Incapable and Shallow Innocence, Mourning Shakespeare's Children in Richard III and the Winter's Tale by Charlotte Scott at Goldsmiths University of London. Uh, let's th- well, tell us what you think about uh, this first, uh, some thoughts about this first uh, section, uh, Shakespearean Childhoods. Sure. I think I should say at this point, I was, I was speaking um, earlier about the, um, the beginnings of the book in a, uh, in a conference, but we actually uh, invited a lot of people who weren't at the conference um, to contribute to, to the book. And the three chapters that you mentioned are people who, who we invited um, later to contribute because we had admired their work um, on childhood. All of them had, had worked um, on childhood before and um, in different ways. So the, we started with these three uh, chapters because they addressed uh, close readings of Shakespearean plays. And so we looked at, um, at Hamlet um, at, uh, and, and Seth Lehrer's essay on Hamlet is really interesting because, you know, we think of Hamlet, I, I think we think of Hamlet as this kind of, uh, as a very adult play, right? And ex- exploring very adult issues. Um, but what Lehrer points out is the way that it is in fact a play that is very much invested in, uh, in childhood um, and that the theatricality that is so pervasive in Hamlet has its roots in uh, childhood um, pedagogy and in, mm-hmm. um, in the theatricalization of that pedagogy through recitation uh, and performance of different kinds. Mm-hmm. The traffic in children, uh, I was interested in, the, so it talks about the, uh, like the choir boy companies uh, 
there's two kinds of boy players, the choir boy companies and also the boys in the uh, adult companies. Uh, And so I was reading in in there about how uh, boys for choir boys would be stolen. If you're at the, um, you know, the Cathedral Inn, Exeter or something, and you're a good choir boy, it's a good chance you're going to get stolen away to St. Paul's. And there was an official, uh, you were allowed to do that, uh, to take them off and then end up on the stage in uh, the London theatres in Blackfriars and places. So that was, I enjoyed that uh, essay very much. Yeah, it's wonderful. And it's a wonderful example, in fact, of how um, how the the the, the book uh, places a lot of its contributors in dialogue because mm-hmm. Joe Campana is writing about Bart Van Ess's book, Shakespeare and Company, mm-hmm. which made quite a splash when it had uh, those kinds of historical revelations about uh, about sort of child entrapment. Um, yes, yeah, <laughs> the traffic in children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, and that was an interesting essay for me to read because I had... I had uh, never thought about um, the the word precarity, which is mm-hmm. so much a contemporary term. We think about precarious work, yeah, the and subtitle gig ship- economy, uh, shipwrecked Shakespeare, precarious Pericles. Right, that was the first time that I'd, I'd heard that word precarity, or thought about the word precarity in the in the context of uh, of, of our of the historical period that I work on. To think about mm-hmm. uh, a character like Marina um, as. Uh, and her, the precarity, the precariousness of her existence, is uh, is is very interesting. Um, and also, what I what I think is interesting about that that chapter too is the way that it moves between the sort of the experience of the boy actor, the kind of lived experience of the boy actor, uh, and then a character like Marina. There's a kind of a slippage between boys mm-hmm. and girls in that chapter, which is uh, something you see in many other chapters elsewhere in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, Incapable in Shallow Innocence, Mourning Shakespeare's Children in Richard III and the Winter's Tale. Uh, tell us about that one. Well, Charlotte Scott's very moving uh, chapter talks about mourning um, and childhood and uh, places those in, in relationship to the idea of innocence um, mm-hmm. and loss. And what uh, she highlights is the, is the association of infancy and childhood with speech uh, or of not of, of lack of speech of silence and so she also connects the the um the association of children and childhood innocence with the work of mourning but as a as a kind of a silent work of mourning um that takes place uh what i like so much about that chapter too is the way that it uh it dovetails very neatly into the next section into mm-hmm. lucy monroe's chapter on childhood speech mm-hmm. yeah beyond the, the next section uh, beyond the boy actor speaking like a child staging children's speech in early modern drama by lucy monroe king's college uh, london that, yeah, that was a, a good chapter too. Tell us about that. Well, yeah, and it, it works. It works in a fascinating way with uh, with Charlotte Scott's because they're they're um, they kind of work against each other. Um, Scott focusing on on silence um, and Monroe talking about children's voices, but also coming to the conclusion in a way that. Um, we can't actually recover the lost speech of children so much uh, as what adults perceived of mm-hmm. um, in terms of the speech of children and how how um, how, how they're adults depicted or, depicted or what, uh, uh, how they're used how they're used as children or how their voices are used as children to say things uh, that adults can't or uh, that we put veneer on things as adults that they don't. 
Right, right, absolutely. And so what I think is interesting too about the way those two two chapters work is um, another thread that is present in so many of the chapters too is the relationship between children and adults. And mm -hmm. when are children acting like grown-ups, when are grown-ups acting like children, um, and how much of, ch of, of our understanding of childhood is filtered through uh, adult categories and, and adult preoccupations. Mm -hmm. uh, Shakespeare versus Blackfriars, a satiric comedy domestic tragedy and the boy actor in Othello by Bart Van Ness, University of Oxford. Well, Bart Van Ness's chapter and Sebastian Kuhl's chapter also are neatly twinned, mm -hmm. um, like so many Shakespearean twins. Um, uh, so the, the, ne the next chapter, I'll, re I'll read that out now. The Metamorphoses of Cupid, John Lyley's uh, Loves a Metamorphosis, and The Return of Children's Playing Company, Bastian Kuhl, University of Munich. Right. So those two chapters are both about the children's playing companies, both about the boy actors in the children's playing mm -hmm. companies, and both in different ways about uh, children playing adult roles. Um, so Bart Venice has a really interesting perspective on Chapman's May Day, which he uh, connects very neatly to the plot of Othello. Uh, he sort of describes the plot of May Day and makes us think it's going to be Othello, but in fact it's this very it's this other play. Mm, um, yes, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, that's a great opening. So he talks about... Uh, about the implications of children um, uh, in these boys' companies and these um, performing as performing as adults, what does that mean for them in, in terms of uh, in terms of their handling of serious, uh, you know, domestic issues, domestic dramas, um, adult sexuality, and so on? And boy, uh, ch children. I, I've heard it said that the children's companies could get away with things uh, that coming out of the mouth of adult companies wouldn't would have been a bit more tricky right absolutely there is definitely the space for uh for uh, pushing the envelope and for different forms of subversion um bastian cool's uh chapter on uh on lily on cupid's metamorphosis uh talks about this one character of cupid uh and his metamorphosing from a, a sort of a a, a classical vision mm -hmm. of the Cupid as a child to a kind of swaggering, out of control, yeah, yeah. Uh, sexualized, youthful Cupid. The, the triumph of the triumph of the Moor, yeah, or right. It's very popular in the Baroque. Those, right. those topics, right. So what's cool about those two chapters is that it's not so much about what adults are thinking about children, which we saw in Charlotte Scott's and Lucy Monroe's, but it's more about the slippery the slippery slope between childhood and adulthood. Um, that childhood exists on a continuum um, with adulthood, um, mm -hmm. alongside adulthood, perhaps, is one, one way of thinking about it. Uh, the next section, Girls and Boys, section three, The Furthers Adventures of Ganymede uh, by Stephen Orgel from Stanford. Well, Stephen's, Stephen Orgel's chapter on Ganymede um, has a lot of really beautiful pictures in it. So, <laughs> listeners, uh, you may wish to check them out. Um, very interesting in its uh, discussion of Ganymede um, and its discussion of Ganymede as uh, a kind of a, a kind of a figure for the boy actor on Shakespeare's stage mm -hmm. uh, in different ways, right? So, Ganymede's um, sexualization uh, on the one hand, uh, pointing us to how boys played those female parts often you know those romantic female leads mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but also the way in which those boys were um, also um, in, uh, entrapped um, which is also a story that we see in uh, in the story of Ganymede he's a uh, he's he's trapped and becomes Jove's kind of sex slave 
They are, we'll come back to Chastity Speech and the Girl Massacre by Deanne Williams at York University, uh, but move straight on to uh, Milton, and the Fem- and Milton and Female Perspiration by Douglas Trevor, University of Michigan. Right. Well, you know, this 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 um, book had its origins in Montpellier, which was uh, one of the <laughs> oldest medical schools oh, is that right? in um, the, Europe. Um, and we, we were we, we went to hear papers at the Faculté de Médecine. Um, it was very, very beautiful. So it's appropriate in that case then that we uh, that we have a paper that is focused on the medical aspect of education uh, and the stage. It's a chapter about uh, really an unpacking of a very famous uh, and curious line in Milton's um, Comus um, uh, about the, um, the, the seat on which the lady is imprisoned mm-hmm. being smeared with gums of glutinous heat. Um, <laughs> there's been a lot of uh, discussion over the years of what could be the uh, source of, the, of these gums. And, uh, and this chapter comes up with an ingenious uh, answer to it in the uh, form of a kind of perspiration um, mm-hmm. sweat. What is, what's the old saying? Uh, horses sweat, men perspire, ladies only glow. I glow. Think. <laughs> <laughs> and it reminds me, talking about medical things, I think it was, it, in fact, I'm sure it was uh, the chapter on speaking like a child had a um, passage from a, uh, a manual for midwives at the time saying that you should you should you should read this book just to read this passage um saying that you the midwives should trim the umbilical cords of girls shorter so that their tongues will be shorter but the boys they should trim their um umbilical cords longer so that um their tongues can be more eloquently used for speech and also their manhoods would be longer, the longer the umbilical cords. Uh, I don't know if anybody, any research has been done on that since the 16th and 17th century, but it does, doesn't sound terribly I think long. this is what Alice was talking about in Henry V when she said, uh, <laughs> the tongues of the men is be full of deceits. <laughs> there you are. Must have been uh, his uh, clipped extra long. There you are. <laughs> so then there's a very interesting section, Afterlives, um, which is uh, sort of echoes of Shakespeare in more modern plays. Uh, to green yet for lust, but not for love. Andrew Marvel and the Invention of Children's Literature. Blaine Greatman, University of Iowa. Right. Blaine Greatman's uh, chapter makes uh, really interesting claims about a... Uh, an aspect of Andrew Marvel's poetry that uh, people might find a little bit um, uh, worrying, uh, the, the, uh, this uh, sort of obsession with little girls, the thank heaven for little girls aspect yes, of Andrew yeah, you Marvel. you can't get away with that now. Um, and he does so by situating Marvel uh, in a larger uh, context of, of Puritan culture, uh, of its fascination with the religious education of children, and then linking that Puritanism to larger questions of liberty and political dissent. So he has a very good answer for what to do with those nymphs in uh, in Marvel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All Macbeth's sons, James J. Marino, Cleveland State University. Jim Marino's chapter, uh, All Macbeth's Sons, looks at um, Macbeth in terms of what Freud, Freud called the uh, the family romance. So he looks at um, 
what did Lady Macbeth feel about her father? Mm-hmm. Um, what was Macbeth's um, relationship as well uh, to, uh, to their children? Um, so these sort of central Freudian narratives being played out in uh, 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 avant la lettre in, mm-hmm. uh, in Macbeth, um, and uh, particularly focusing on the idea of infanticide, which was something that uh, mm-hmm. Freud was uh, deeply concerned with. Um, and then uh, Elizabeth Pentland, from, also from York University. I enjoyed her uh, Modern Retrospectives, Childhood and Education in Tom Stoppard's Shakespearean Plays. We were talking about uh, the traffic of boys and, oh, I've forgotten the name in um, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, the poor young man who's being uh, trafficked about in, uh, in that play uh, features heavily in uh, Liz's essay. Right, that's one of the neat things that comes up about uh, in this book over and over again. These 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 themes keep getting um, uh, keep getting repeated, um, and in, in this case, the theme of uh, of, of kidnapping um, and of, uh, of of children being um, being used for uh, for adult economic gain. And it's Thomasina that's in Arcadia, uh, right? So her looking at her. Um... Education. She's the one who's getting the education in uh, in Ar- uh, Tom Stoppard's Arcadia. So that was uh, fun for me to read. That's right. I had never thought about. I love that play so much, uh, mm-hmm. and I and I teach that play uh, every year. But I had never. You and I have gone to see that play. Indeed, we have. Um, I had never thought about uh, Thomasina through the lens of uh, these sort of Shakespearean girl heroines who are, in fact, so familiar to me. Mm-hmm. But um, I appreciated that perspective very much. Uh, well, let's go back then to um, with, uh, your, your chapter on chastity speech and the girl masker. Your uh, Milton's Comus mask is, uh, uh, has the famous lady who speaks great tracts of speech in there and a little song or two. Uh, tell us, tell us about your chapter and uh, what you think about uh, her and her predecessors on the stage. Right. Well, my chapter is also twinned with uh, Doug Trevor's, uh, in that we both discuss Milton's uh, Comus or mm-hmm. um, in detail. And um, I was interested in looking at that mask because I thought that um, she was often uh, Milton's lady was often uh, hailed as a kind of a first. Um, uh, representing a, a sort of an, an opening that had that had come up um, in theater history for women to participate. This this moment in the in the 1630s um, when women were performing in court masks. Henrietta Maria, for example, and her and her ladies. Um, She's the wife of uh, Charles the First. Right, dad. right, of course, the, the queen. Yeah. And of course, a generation before that too, Queen Anne uh, and the and those and those court masks. But that this was in some way a beginning for women. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I actually argue in my chapter that it's really not a beginning; um, that it is in fact a culmination of a long tradition of girl performances that had been going on. You can chart it from um, you know from the uh, the Greek. Um, uh, Parthenia, if you like, um, through the uh, the medieval drama of Kotzvita of Gandersheim, um, and then into the religious plays of the Middle Ages, um, and in England, then we have various Tudor civic pageants, uh, country house entertainments, and then court masks. So we can mm-hmm. chart a long prehistory of the, of the lady in um, in Milton's Comus, which was performed by a fifteen year old girl, Lady Alice Edgerton. 
Uh, now, speaking of beginnings, you said, uh, is it the beginning? Is it not the beginning? I think you say in the uh, introduction, you say that you want, you think that this book is a jumping off point. What things do, do you need think need to be thought about by other people? Well, I think there are, there are certain takeaways um, from this book. Um, I, think, I think one is the, the various threads that we, uh, that we trace throughout the book. Uh, one of them is a sort of gender slippage question about boys and girls. Uh, one is the, uh, the question of the sort of the, the productive tension between childhood and adult. Um, and another one is this kind of question about the violence and victimization of children, the precarity mm-hmm. uh, uh, theme. So there are, there are those, those things, I think, are, are themes that we, that we bring out in this book. And I, I think that for, in terms of provoking further work, I, I would think that there would be uh, an opportunity for more rethinking of Shakespeare's characters through the lens of childhood. I think that we've just started with these chapters to see the way in which so many of the uh, characters in, in Shakespeare, not just the child characters, are, uh, are formulated through, through childhood. So there's, there's, that, um, there's that angle. Also placing Shakespeare in the context of what other of his contemporary, either contemporary playwrights or contemporary thinkers were saying and doing about childhood. So thinking about Shakespeare in relationship to Chapman or Lily um, and also people like uh, Milton and Marvel, people who came after. Mm-hmm. So there are those there are those contributions as well. I think another thing I would maybe prompt for further further thinking is kind of our sort of our method methodology we in this book brought two uh, major institutions together uh, education and the stage thinking about those two together is something that is going on in current scholarship already mm-hmm. i'm thinking of the work of um of lynn enterline and lynn magnuson here but also what if we think about other institutions you know, what if we thought about childhood in terms of medicine or law? Um, I think that that could also produce fruitful inquiry. Yeah, I think the education, actually, I was thinking like that I was wanted, I'm now interested in hearing more about education in, you say, in law and religion and the theater. They're all really in the same business of learning the art of declamation and rhetoric which is, a, well, the grammar schools and the, re- the art of rhetoric is a, is a huge part of the education. And girls are getting that as well. To deliver those big speeches in Comus, the young lady m- must have been uh, groomed and, and uh, skilled in the art of rhetoric. And that would be uh, something they'd admire. So I was interested in their that rhetorical education uh, and uh, their musical education, because the boys are playing, you know, an hour of music in these boys' companies, things, uh, and th- those all, all of those things bleed one into another. The uh, the art of rhetoric and the art of music, um, in in the humanist um, package of things you need to know. That's absolutely correct. We are far too siloed, and we mm-hmm, need to be thinking about yeah. uh, these institutions and these uh, these fields in uh, in much more mutually constituted ways, for sure. I'm glad you mentioned girls as well. Well, they she those speeches in there. Uh, I I can hardly get you know, how many, you've heard how many hums and ahs I've just done in this last thirty seconds. She wouldn't have got away with that in on the stage. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm 
looking at the rather striking cover picture of uh, three young kiddos yeah. here. One of them's got Isn't a bird, lovely? a bird in his hand, um, through his sister's arm, and then um, she's holding a looks like a guinea pig. It's a great picture. They're splendid, splendid suits of clothes. I think it's the first ever image of a guinea pig. It's the oldest image of a guinea pig as a pet. In, in, in as a pet. Uh, yeah, in Europe. It's funny you should ask me about the cover. We actually had kind of, it was kind of a challenge with the cover for the book. We had um, one of those experiences where you kind of, you know, the cover of your book before you've actually got the book. (laughs) (laughs) So we had this, um, we knew from the beginning that we were going to use the image from the Benedict Cumberbatch Hamlet poster, which is really, really striking. It's got all these children um, in all of the different parts of Hamlet. Um, uh, in costume, so a little boy with an Elizabethan ruff and an Ophelia, I think she's got like little angel's wings, um, all sitting around a table. And um, those, of, uh, those of you listeners out there, you can Google the poster if you want to have a look and see just what a perfect image it would provide. Benedict for... Cumberbatch Hamlet's poster. Yes, for this, um, for, this, um, for this book on childhood education in the stage. It would have been absolutely perfect, but it was too expensive. Uh, there was no way we could afford it. So at a certain point, we had to come. There you are. Once you've got to... all of Stephen Orgel's pictures uh, in his chapter, you've no money left over for the cover. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, uh, I, I was complaining about this to my partner, Tom Bishop, who was able to produce... A wonderful alternative in the three These Elizabethan, unknown Elizabethan kids. children with guinea pig, yeah. which he'd seen at an exhibition in London um, at the National Portrait Gallery. Uh-huh. Um, and so the people at the National Portrait Gallery were able to put me in touch with the private owners. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. And um, anonymous we, picture, anonymous, anonymous picture, anonymous owners. And we are very, very grateful to have this per- mm-hmm. perfect picture for our cover. Thank you for listening to Shisai Podcasts. You might also be interested in Musicians in the Ordinary, a podcast that includes a recent episode on Anne Boleyn's songbook and the teenage Margaret Ford's movement. There you can find chats with the Anne Boleyn's and other scholars about the cultural context of Shakespeare's London. Take care.